This is Connected by Nutrition, a podcast brought to you by Nutrition Ireland and designed for healthcare professionals only. Hello and welcome to the Connected by Nutrition podcast. My name is Amy Megan and today I'm joined by Dr. Brian Power, who is dialing in from no other than Sunny Greece to chat to us on the topic of eating behaviours and behavioural change. Brian, it's so good to have you on the podcast today and I must say I'm a little bit jealous that your lockdown is a little sunnier than mine here in Dublin. I'm looking out the window and it's pretty grey and rainy so um, yeah, I'm sure you're delighted to be having a bit of sun there. Ah, Yeah, it's good. Thanks very much for having me on. Um, I'm just wearing shorts now so if you want to picture um, sunny Greece, I'm wearing shorts. It's lovely weather out so yes, it is nice but I do miss home. Ah, uh, yeah, home of course. Is, well, home, home is where the heart is. Yeah, exactly. And hopefully you'll get back over uh, sometime during this year. So, Brian, you're a qualified dietitian, but I know well that your qualifications and your experience and accolades go far beyond that. Um, so as an introduction, would you like to give the listeners um, a little bit of an insight to yourself and your background? I know myself that you have a pretty good story about how your love of Kilkenny hurling was ultimately the reason why you um, decided to become a dietitian. But if you'd like to tell the listeners there, it would be great. Yeah, no problem at all. Thanks very much. Yeah, so I suppose starting off from that. So I'm I'm from Kilkenny originally. Um, I used to play hurling as any decent person from Kilkenny would. They play hurling or camogie. And during that time, uh, we were training and a person came along and gave us a talk on nutrition, how it improves performance. And if you don't eat well, then you're going to be losing games. And so I looked into this a bit further and I found out you could get a job doing it, giving talks about nutrition to different groups of people, whether it be sports or um, in hospitals. So I went to the local St. Luke's Hospital in Kilkenny, shadowed a dietitian for a couple of days, uh, fell in love with it immediately. Um, the, just the breadth and diversity of what you can do as a dietitian whether it be in a hospital or whether it be in the sporting arena or whether it be working for a company like Nutrition. So I fell in love with it instantly. And then I decided to uh, attend Robert Gordon University in Aberdeen in Scotland and graduated in 2010. Uh, following that then, I spent a bit, a bit of a stint down in London in uh, Imperial College Healthcare, NHS Trust. And my love of research then, I suppose, shone true uh, at that point in terms of asking why we do things, uh, certain responses I suppose I didn't like in terms of that's the way we've always done it. Uh, so I'd be questioning and naturally uh, from my time in, in Robert Gordon as well, um, my lecturer there, Susan Lenny, who's also a dietitian, um, recommended that I probably would at some point do research. So I ended up doing a PhD going back to Aberdeen and um, did a research project on developing a workplace uh, behaviour change programme for nurses and that's where my um, interest and, to this day, um, fondness for uh, behaviour change uh, started. And it brings me right up to now, where I'm currently mixed roles in terms of lecturing. So I lecture at IT Sligo on the uh, MSc programmes in public health nutrition and health promotion practice. I'm also a senior dietitian at UCLH in London. And then I dabble a bit in um, the European Federation Association for Dietitians and the research an evidence-based practice committee, and I'm a director on the British Dietetic Association, all with the, the aim of trying to give back to those people who uh, influenced me along the way. 
Brilliant. Thanks, Brian. That's a very impressive CV there. And um, you've got lots of things going on and a really good, diverse workload, I suppose. And it's nice to see how you bring it all together. So mm-hmm. I'm just going to dive right into the topic of the podcast, which is on eating behaviours and behaviour change. So I recently uh, read a series that you published in the CN magazine on the topic of eating habits. But could you give um, the listeners a summary of what you covered in the series, series just for anyone who didn't get to read it? Yeah, sure. No problem. Uh, so it was I was quite... Um... T- taken aback that somebody uh, went, went to the Lent as you did Emmy to, to email me about it and it's quite um, it's lovely it's a lovely feeling to get when people actually read your stuff and it has some impact uh, so I yeah so since for about two years now, I've been writing behavior change topics within a complete, complete nutrition magazine otherwise known as CN um, magazine and all with the, the intention of trying to really impart some of the research that I've been doing around behavior change and, and trying to explain it in an accessible, digestible format. So the most recent of which is, as you've mentioned there, um, eating habits. Um, and with any topic, I try to break it down into uh, mechanisms of a particular topic, how something forms, how, how to, to make things work, and then the future. So what future research um, might be required. So within eating habits, uh, the, first theory, the first article in the series looked at the definition of, of eating habits, what were the mechanisms that underlie it, and they're namely just three. So there's three different mechanisms and there would be re- repetition, um, instilling cues. So putting something in the environment to, to, to remind yourself to do something, to eat something, and then also reward. So trying to do something that's pleasurable and um, that it can increase your, your motivation and also doing something that uh, aligns with your values. Um, and then in the second series, I looked at, so how do we form uh, what I kind uh, wanted eating habits uh, and or disrupt unwanted eating habits um, and from that point of view there's really two different processes so you can break down eating habits into a dual process model is what it's called in the literature and what that means is you can have eating behaviors or behavior in general human behavior can be unconscious or conscious sometimes they call it hot and cold um, and Habits, essentially, uh, there's an argument that it falls into the unconscious, but more explicitly, there's actually two processes going on. So there's both. So at the beginning, you'd make a conscious, concerted, goal-directed commitment to, let's say, eat porridge every morning. Um, And then you'd repeat that over again, put cues in the kitchen. So put your bowl and and your spoon the night before. And then when you come down in the morning... Uh, it triggers you in, into enacting that behavior. And then you'd want to make sure it's, it's rewarding. So the reward might be that it's pleasurable, that you get energy later on in the day. And that's the, the process that enhances your motivation to repeat it again. And so that would be the, con- the conscious um, side of uh, eating habits. And then later on, over time, and this is a, a debate within the literature and within practice as well, in terms of how long does it take to form an eating habit? Uh, but over time, whether it takes eight days, 80 days, there's, some, there's a myth that it takes everybody 60 days. It ranges according to each individual. Um, but what happens then over time is that the conscious, goal-directed, effortful um, manners in which you eat porridge would become unconscious and effort, effortless. Um, and that essentially becomes the habit. And that's what I talked about in, in the second uh, article of the series. And then in the third article... I looked at the future. So 
what what do we know? Uh, what do we not know? In, inevitably and invariably, uh, with nutrition, there's lots we don't know. Uh, so one of the key things we don't know yet fully is in terms of measuring eating habits. So another way of uh, categorizing or investigating a topic is looking at your definitions, your mechanisms, looking at measurements, and then looking at interventions and outcomes. Um, and in terms of interventions, there's a lot of digital type uh, interventions that are being implemented currently. Uh, but the measurement of measuring the outcome of eating habits is still not quite uh, robust as it should be. Equally, the interventions, uh, a lot of them are not described very well. So there is initiatives within the behavioral sciences literature uh, to describe interventions better. So what I mean by that is there might be some intervention that's developed, let's say an online uh, program that gives a series of lessons uh, to increase people's knowledge about a particular um, dietary pattern, let's say the Mediterranean diet. Um, but it might not describe who's delivering that, how often, um, over what, like what, what period of time, um, what, mo- what mode of delivery. So obviously it's online, but is it in a group? Is it individual? Um, and so research has um, come to fruition in terms of there's been reporting checklists. And one of them is called Tidier. Now this can be used for research, but it can also be used for practice. It's a good way of, so I work in practice myself. It, it is a good way of even for patients describing what 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 they're going to be doing in, in agreement with you. Um, it really does help uh, get to people thinking a bit more about what's going on. Um, so I looked at that and then equally, there's limited um, randomized controlled trials in this area. Now, within nutrition, we say that randomized controlled trials are very difficult to do. Um, it doesn't mean it can't be done. So they do them in, in surgical um, operations as well. So I, I don't see why they can't be done in, in nutrition, more specifically around behavioral sciences, perhaps than your cohort longitudinal studies. Um, but that's another gap that we need to try and um, try and uncover. So it's really the three articles covered the, the mechanisms, first of all, how to form eating habits, how to disrupt eating habits. And then the third one was looking at the future. So trying to get out my crystal ball <laughs> and predicting what um, what might happen in the future. Great. That's so interesting, Brian. Um, like I read the series, but hearing you summarize it again, like really brings it to life. It's, it's so fascinating and it's just, it'll be great to see where things go in the future as well. That's always something that we can look forward to. But I'm also interested in how we have changed in terms of our behavior today, in terms of our eating habits, as opposed to maybe 30, 40 years ago. Has there been any published research showing what's what's happened in the last number of decades or is, is it maybe not there yet and it's more about the future? Uh, yeah, so in terms of the um, dietary pattern, so it's more about the how we eat as opposed to perhaps what, so what we, what we eat will, will change maybe incrementally over time, uh, but it's more about the, the methods that we that have, the way food is produced is, is a big change that's occurred. Uh, people need more convenience now. Now I'm talking from a developed country perspective, so let's say a European level perspective, um, and it might it might well differ in the developing country. Although I wouldn't be too much of an expert within the developing country context, but it's more about the methods that have changed that have produced food that have aligned with people's pace of life. So that's one thing that has changed. People need more convenience. The other thing, perhaps, I mean, if we just think about now um, the pandemic. Uh, that's happening we're all currently well the majority of Europe let's say is, is either locked down or has restrictions to a certain degree and um, there is re- emerging research over the last couple of months if we just take it 
from 40 years to now, um, there is more evidence now that more people are cooking from home because they have more time. So that may well be a positive legacy of this otherwise bleak time. Mm-hmm. Um, but equally, what has changed as well, portion sizes have changed. Uh, so in terms of the direction and the magnitude, so they've invariably they've increased um, over the past 40 years. Um, and within the last five to 10 years, another I suppose, trend around eating habits is that uh, people are becoming more uh, conscious driven about what they're eating. So what I mean by that is, uh, sustainability so trying to uh, eat food from a sustainable source now that doesn't apply to everybody so another thing that has changed that is not directly food but it's what you might call the causes of the causes so it's a cause that causes people to eat a certain way uh, would be health inequalities um, so they have uh, have widened over a period of time uh, within uh, Europe for example within the UK Ireland more specifically um, and that has um, inevitable consequences, not just really on, on, on the, the the quantity of people that what they're eating, but the quality as well. Um, and so, more research on that is, is has been done, and it's starting to seep into policy making uh, and in practice over time. But that's certainly an area that, as dietitians, we certainly need to keep an eye on. Thanks, Brian. That's so interesting. And I must have a chat with my parents and see what they think has changed most over the years. It'd be interesting to see um, what what they were doing when they were my age as opposed to how I'm behaving now. And definitely what you said about the pandemic, you know, with, with no restaurants to go to anymore, where most of us are spending more time in the kitchen. So definitely an area to watch now in the future. And like we know with eating habits and any habit formation, I suppose, comes the behaviour change. And thinking specifically about our dietitian listeners, what behaviour changes do you believe are the most important for dietitians to prioritise in order for them to see maximum impact with their patients or on a public health level if, if they're working in the public health space either? So, yeah, that's a. Uh... A gargantuan question that I'll, 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 try, I'll try and break down. Um, so I suppose the, the first thing to recognize from a behavior change point of view, which might sound um, defeatist, but it, it's just it's an objective fact, is that the majority of our eating behaviors uh, occur unconsciously. So they're triggered by the environment. So if we put it in the, a hospital context, uh, simple things that can be done is um, around so what we call choice architecture. So placing just a, a plate or food within uh, accessible distance of a patient is a very simplistic thing to do, but actually has a massive impact. So you get a massive bang for your buck in terms of changing the, the environment around a patient within that particular setting. But if we break it down into another level, another thing that dietitians and a lot of dietitians are doing, so this is, I suppose, more of a reinforcement, is getting outcomes properly uh, evaluated. So showing our work essentially in terms of trying to change behavior of policymakers. So people with the big budgets. So we can look at behavior change from a patient perspective or a more wider, broader policy level um, perspective. And so that would be from a policy level perspective and focusing more on the, yeah, the environment and the context that people are working in. We think about patients uh, one-to-one um, on an individual level. One thing that I always um, promote and due to its supporting evidence base is shared decision-making. So that would be considered a behavior change approach. So it's really looking at 
working with somebody in agreement um, and getting a person to really um, promote or weigh up pros and cons of, of, of what they want to do in terms of changing their behavior from an eating perspective. Um, the other thing that dietitians could do um, as well is trying to get, so I mentioned about evaluating outcomes, is te- just testing, testing things out, um, trying to evaluate them, whether from an audit or from research. And just if people have a gut feeling about what works or they just think that something works on, on intuition, it's more about testing. It might well do work from a behavior, behavior change perspective, but it's just really about trying to ensure that that's tested to provide the objective evidence that it does work so that it could get replicated more broadly. Um, then on an individual level, there are uh, self-regulatory techniques that are useful across a broad spectrum of conditions and a broad spectrum of eating patterns and, and eating habits. Um, and there will be things such as planning, self-monitoring, uh, goal setting, um, and ensuring that whatever is agreed within that particular catchment of techniques that it's aligned with somebody's values. And we hear it all the time, but for a reason that it's tailored to somebody's individual circumstance. And that will come out if we do adopt uh, the shared decision-making model, um, as opposed to the opposite, which would be more of a top-down approach. So I kind of know best as a dietitian and you are to listen to me, which I have experienced in the past in in certain settings. um, And that's not, um, doesn't work in the majority of cases. On the flip side, there are people that want that type of approach, but it's more about if you do the shared decision-making uh, process, then you will get to understand that from the very beginning. So it's really about putting the expertise uh, from the patient's perspective. Um, and I heard a great um, saying, and I try to remember it all the time, is that so dietitians, let's say myself, I have four years training and then 10 years post-training, uh, and people will say, well, that 15 years training is nothing compared to somebody's 40 years of lived experience of a condition. So people are their own experts and we need to put more trust into people in terms of patients what, knowing what works for them. Yeah, that's really good advice, Brian. Um, and it, it can be easy sometimes, yeah, to be a dietitian versus the patient. But yeah, it's so important to remember that their years of experience with their condition actually means a whole lot. And and should be acknowledged as well and like it goes without say that implementing behavior change definitely is going to come with many challenges for both the, the patient and also the dietitian or the healthcare professional who's involved what would you say are the major challenges for healthcare professionals in relation to behavior change and maybe have you experienced any key challenges that you, you'd like to share with us yeah, certainly. So I suppose, first of all, just kind of flow, flowing on from that um, concept of time uh, or time pressure. So in certain quarters, there is a, a misconception about certain uh, behavior change approaches that they take a long time. So shared decision making would be one, asking open-ended questions that it's easier just to get yes, no responses and, and it's much quicker. Um, the actual, the evidence bears this out in that it, it takes less time and you get more um, information from people from uh, adopting a shared decision-making approach. So I suppose that's one of the key challenges from for somebody like me, let's say, who's trying to promote the um, implementation of behavior, behavioral sciences within practice, is trying to um, dispel some of the misconceptions that people have that it's, it takes too long 
particularly for example within the acute setting um, the evidence um, would demonstrate that it, it, it doesn't take as much time to adopt and actually it saves time in terms of needing to repeat yourself um, needing to change tact uh, more frequently because you're aligning with what somebody wants uh, the other challenge that I have come across as well um, within practice myself is a lack of training opportunities. So there are very uh, limited uh, dietetic, dietitian, nutrition specific training programs that are available. Um, so if you think about motivational interviewing, for example, every uh, so which is a, another behavior change approach, every behavior change approach, strategy, technique, whatever you want to call a program, might differ in terms of effectiveness according to the behavior. So eating, physical activity is a health behavior. Uh, smoking, drinking alcohol, unprotected sex, all those type of behaviors are considered risk behaviors. So there's a lack of really uh, dietetic specific or tailored to dietitian circumstances. And that would certainly would be a challenge um, in trying to get that on board. But the flip side of that is because people are embracing technology more, now there is an opportunity to try and I suppose develop more of those training opportunities. And that's certainly something that I will look to do um, going forward. The other thing as well, that's a potential challenge, but it has improved greatly since I was training, is incorporating behavior change as part of uh, the dietetic curriculum. Um, but as I said, that has that has changed. So it's probably a generational thing where we'll see that more, become more and more evident in practice is that people are embracing behavior change. And then lastly, the other ch uh, challenge, again, is a misconception. In, in a lot of these cases, it always is, um, is that behavior change is not the dietitian's role. Um, we're most concerned about just getting food into people and getting them to eat the right type. And my response to that would be, um, yes, we need to know what people are eating. They can diet histories and so on. But we also need to understand what's, what's eating people. So what is, it, what, is it, what is it that people are thinking? What's influencing their decision-making? And we can only really understand understand that by adopting our behavior change approaches yeah that's that's brilliant brian uh thanks for highlighting and acknowledging where the challenges exist because that's so important and it, it's really important to like remind people that there are misconceptions out there but that they are only misconceptions and we can overcome them and mm -hmm. it's good for you to highlight you know how you foresee us coming over them obstacles in the future and how dietitians can feel more confident in implementing behavior change with their patients. Like Ryan, I could honestly chat to you for hours on end about this. It's, it's such a fascinating topic and there's so much to learn and appreciate about behavior change. And I think you've given the listeners a really good top line understanding of that. Um, so we are going to have to finish up. But before we do that, we've got a couple of quick fire questions for you, if you're happy to answer them. What would be your desert island dish? Desert island dish. Now, I did know this question was coming up. Um, and I must say, I didn't give it any thought, to be honest. So I'm just thinking <laughs> on the spot right now. Um, so my desert island dish. God, what is it going to be? I suppose it'll, it'll, it'll differ every day. But yeah. right now, right now, I have an awful um, notion of eating a banoffee pie. Oh, lovely. Yeah. So that's, it might change tomorrow, but if someone puts a banoffee pie in me, nine times out of 10, I will eat it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a very good choice. I'd happily go to that desert island now for banoffee pie. <laughs> um, and then question number two, 
what book would you read over and over again? Uh, again, so I didn't know this question was coming up and I've read a couple of books, so I, I mostly read autobiographies. Mm-hmm. Um, but I go all the way back to the very first book I ever read. Um, it was prior to my uh, leaving certificate, which if people UK, in the UK don't know about, it's the A-level equivalent, so just before you go to university. And I read a book uh, by an author called Colm Tobin, um, and it was called The Master. Um, and it was about a... American author who traveled across Europe trying to master his profession of being an author and writing plays. So it would be that. Oh, very interesting. I'm actually doing a a book challenge myself this year. So I think I will add that to my list and hopefully it'll make the cut later in the year. (laughs) So um, just to close off, Brian, where can listeners find you on social media or Twitter, LinkedIn, wherever is best to find you? Yeah, so... Twitter would be my go-to. Um, I use it as often, if not more, than my email. So my Twitter handle would be, uh, it, or it is, at BrianPowerRD. Um, I'm also on Instagram with the same handle and LinkedIn, but I, I don't use them as often. Uh, although that's how we did get in touch, Amy. So yep. if you do send me a message, I'll, I will respond. Uh, but Twitter is probably, if you want an immediate uh, instant gratification, that would be the, the avenue to contact me. Brilliant. Thank you. Brian, once again, thanks a million for coming on the podcast. It's been great chatting and maybe we'll chat again in the future. Um, join us. Thank you very much for having me. No problem. Join us again soon on the Connected by Nutrition podcast. Take care. This is Connected by Nutrition, a podcast brought to you by Nutrition Ireland and designed for healthcare professionals only.